morning, church. Today, I'm privileged to bring to you the conclusion of our series exploring salvation and eternal life. John Ortberg's book, Eternity is Now in Session, has provided the framework for the last several sermons that we've heard. Its subtitle says, A Radical Rediscovery of What Jesus Really Taught About Salvation, Eternity, and Getting to the Good Place. It's almost certainly too strong a statement. But the importance of what John Ortberg is writing about is certainly very important. Here are some of the important places that we've already been. Salvation looks backwards and it looks forwards. That is to say that we are saved from something and for something, or more importantly, someone. The most common expression of Christian faith has done a really good job of expressing what we are saved from, our sins, but has sometimes fallen short of articulating what we are saved for. Put more plainly, we've sometimes understood salvation as a business transaction between us and God. What's the contractual minimum that I have to do in order for you, God, to permit me into eternal life? But as Jonathan reminded us a few weeks ago, the problem is it's not a business transaction. It's a marriage proposal, and minimum entrance requirements kinds of questions just don't fit. Jesus says it like this, I have come that you might have life, and that you might have it abundantly. Not life bios like a beating heart or pulsating lungs. Life, zoe, full, rich with intimacy and wholeness and purpose. And Jesus says, come follow me. And so we have been. We've had Ryan lead us through awakening, that mountaintop experience, and as he reminded us sometimes in the valleys, when we encounter Jesus in a unique way, in a special way, and we're intrigued. Repentance, as Dustin reminded us, that moment when we fall in the heap of fish under the hot sun at the feet of Jesus. And because we know deep down in our core that we're not good enough and that we don't belong in his presence. But we hear a gentle voice, don't be afraid. And he lifts us to our feet and we go and we follow him. Or last week, illumination. As Kelly described to us that aha moment when we finally see clearly, along with Peter, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of of the living God. And though we certainly don't understand everything, we trust wholly with our entire being that Jesus does, and so we're willing to follow him. And that brings us to this week, union. It's a long, comfortable, abiding union with the one who saves us and for whom we are saved. And to start our walk today with Jesus, we're going to take a little meander through a first century vineyard. So if you've been cooped up like I have, I invite you to put on your rubber boots and come along for the, for the journey. As you do that, let's pray. God, this morning we want to open our hearts to you. Make us soft. We want to open our minds to you. Please make us sharp. We want to offer to you our hands and our feet to do the things that you would do. And we ask you to give us the strength, the power, the energy to do that. In Jesus we pray. Amen. 
So here we are. We've arrived in the first century luscious vineyard. It's, it's springtime. It's a sunny day. It's a beautiful clear sky, not a wisp of wind. And you can smell it's the growing season. If you listen carefully, you can hear workers in the vineyard pounding stakes into the ground, rustling the leaves of the vines as they move them around. Our tour guide today is going to be Pliny. He's a man who has written a 10-volume encyclopedia called Natural History. It's an ancient encyclopedia detailing all kinds of things from the world. One special area of interest is viticulture, which is the science of cultivating grapevines. And we're going to learn a few things from him, the first of which is uh, how he describes the different ways they would lift the plants off the ground. Sometimes workers would just drive a single pole into the ground and put the vines on them, or it would be a T-shaped kind of structure, or sometimes a trellis that we might be more familiar with. It was all designed to get the vines up off the ground where the wind could take away the morning dew, expose more of the leaves and the fruit to the sun to produce really sweet and juicy fruit. He also mentions, and this is really interesting, two kinds of branches that are important to every growing season. Fruiting branches and non-fruiting branches. The fruiting branches we're probably familiar with, they're ones that are expected to produce fruit this season. We expect them to grow clusters of grapes, and the workers have the responsibility of making sure that they had just enough buds on them. If there's too few buds, then the plant grows too fast, and there ends up being just shriveled uh, clusters of grapes and far fewer flowers. But if there's too many buds, then the plant's energy is spread too thin, and the fruit that is produced ends up being too small and deficient. The workers would cathire, or prune, these branches to make sure the optimal number of buds were left on the branch for the season. The other kind of branch is the non-fruiting branch. These were also critical because they were expected and prepared to produce fruit the following season. These branches are left very leafy so that they can grow strong and thick to support next year's harvest. Workers would iray or lift up these vines and place them on the trellises alongside the fruiting branches because they too had an important role to play. So during the growing season, we learned from Pliny, the workers iray or lift up the non-fruiting branches and they Cathire or prune the fruiting branches, both vital to a successful growing season. So let's come on back to our living rooms for a little bit, and I'd invite you to go for a little journey through a vineyard metaphor with Jesus in John chapter 15. Well, you turn there, let me give you a little bit of context. At this point in the gospel, Jesus' public ministry has ended. He shared the Passover meal with his disciples, and Judas has gone out into the night. And now he's in the middle of a long dialogue with the eleven, who are scared, who are worried, who are uncertain, and he is reassuring them and encouraging them as he knows where his life is headed, and he wants to make sure they're prepared for life after his death and resurrection. Picking up in verse 1, of John chapter 15. I am the true vine, 
and my Father is the gardener. He I ray every branch in me that bears no fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he cath I ray, so that it will be even more fruitful. You are already clean because of the word I have spoken to you. Remain in me, as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. If we read this as a salvation from text, it's terrifying and debilitating. Maybe you've felt this before. On the one terrifying hand, there's the image of God, the gardener, who's cutting off branches which aren't producing fruit. And I'll confess, there have been some long periods in my life where I wasn't producing fruit. And I simply felt the pruning shears were hovering over me. Which leads to the other debilitating hand where I find the heavy and guilt-inducing responsibility of feeling the need to produce fruit of my own accord in order to justify my existence on the vine and finding I don't have the resources for it and feeling like a failure. Maybe you've felt this before. But neither of these understandings make good sense of Jesus' words because he's in the middle of encouraging discouraged disciples who are frightened and worried about what is to come next. I believe this is a salvation for kind of text, which is welcoming and life-giving. If you're following along in your Bible, you probably noticed that I used a couple Greek words in place of the English translations. Kathire, which means pruning, is pretty well attested as a viticultural term. Ire, on the other hand, can be translated as cut off like it is in the NIV, but it also has a significant other meanings, such as to raise to a higher place or position, or to lift up and move from one place to another. So if Jesus was using a metaphor that was rooted in reality in the first century practices of viticulture, and it was one that the disciples understood and would have known, then I think this is the picture of the vine and the branches that emerges. Fruiting and non-fruiting branches exist in the same season, in the growing season. They're both vital to the fruit-bearing vineyard. The gardener of verse 2, therefore, is the gardener who is in the growing season and is caring for the vineyard by ire or lifting up the non-fruiting branches so that they can grow strong, while he also cathire or prunes the fruiting branches, so that they will maximize their fruit production. And the gardener, verse 6, is caring for the vineyard in a totally different season. It's after the harvest. By discarding the spent and withered material that is now useless because it's disconnected from the vine, 
The image is simply to drive home Jesus' message that branches disconnected from the vine cannot bear fruit. It's not a judgment. It's just a statement of fact. Branches disconnected from the vine can't bear fruit. Disciples disconnected from Jesus can't bear fruit. This is a salvation for metaphor that Jesus is sharing. Jesus is telling us his father, the gardener, tends to fruiting and non-fruiting branches alike. And he wants us to bear much fruit. Jesus is telling us that we are saved for fruit bearing, but that it's not our job to produce the fruit. Our job is to remain on the vine, to remain in Jesus. It's so important, in fact, that he says it ten times in ten verses. And as we remain in him, he remains in us. And the life of the vines flows into us. It pours out of us. It produces much fruit in us. I do need to say, though, that I struggle with the idea of union a little bit. Actually, it's not really the idea that I struggle with so much as the practice and experience of union. And it's not a little bit. It's a lot. Randy Harris, a professor that I worked for uh, for a while, once told me on a Thursday that he was hurrying to finish some things up so that he could spend Friday praying. When I asked him what it meant to spend Friday praying, it turns out he said exactly what he meant. He would pray for an hour, spend a few minutes getting a glass of water, and settle in for another hour of prayer. Hour after hour after hour. I don't get it. I mean, I understand the concept, but I don't pray that way. I'm not drawn to prayer that way. On another occasion, I was talking with Randy, the same professor, about spiritual formation. And I was describing to him how life-giving it was to come into my office every morning and study Greek and Hebrew first thing. And in slightly different words, but the same sentiment, he said, Mike, that's not life-giving for you. That's life-giving. That's remaining on the vine. I have a hard time describing for you how freeing that was for me to know that the gardener was tending to a non-fruiting branch in the way that was most appropriate. Jesus doesn't tell us to produce fruit. He tells us to remain on the vine. It's not our job to lift up the vine. It's our job to stay on the vine. It's not our job to prune the branches. It's our job to stay on the vine. It's not our job to pick up the withered sticks at the end of the season. It's our job to stay on the vine. And what does staying on the vine mean? Well, Jesus says it in verses 9 and 10. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. So let's recognize and celebrate the life that we find in obeying the commands of Jesus 
the life that is already flowing through us. It's lingering together with God's word in a first century vineyard. It's hungering for God-centered community that shows up when we sing praises together, even when we're isolated and socially distancing. It's having the means to go anywhere and do anything, but choosing to prepare and serve a meal for our homeless friends. It's moving from a tropical country to a polar one and making it job number one to find a church to worship with. It's dreaming kingdom dreams and turning your sun destination vacation into a lifelong service to a local church in a foreign country. It's giving up your Saturdays to prepare for a VBS in Estonia or sort mountains of clothes to give away or praying and meditating and dreaming over the church that God has entrusted to you. It's creating spaces for laughter and for encouraging words and for fellowship. It's giving in to every Holy Spirit impulse toward goodness and justice and faithfulness and togetherness and kindness and gentleness. That is life on the vine. That's the salvation that God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit invites us into. It's oneness in mind and in heart, in purpose and in action. It's a union that starts in this life and endures into the next. Remain in me. Remain on the vine and have life abundantly.